0: I'm Melvin Morse, a physician, former intensive care uh, specialist, worked at Seattle Children's Hospital for about 20 years and was a professor of uh, pediatrics there. And I got interested uh, in near-death experiences um, because I started to hear these reports from children that i personally resuscitated. So it just, you know, I understand why people are skeptical of this and have a hard time getting their head around it. Because when you, you know, you read a story that someone else has told, um, you know, you don't know whether they're putting you on. You don't know if they're attention seekers. You, you, you just, you know, you just don't know. Um, yet I had the experience. We resuscitated a young boy um, whose pacemaker failed. You know. And uh, in, in the lobby of Seattle Children's Hospital. And we resuscitated him right there. And he dramatically opened his eyes and looked at me and said, That was weird. You guys just sucked me back into my body. <laughs> and, you know, so it, it, I, I just feel privileged uh, to have heard this kind of experience. And once I started looking for him, uh, I found that virtually all children. Uh, who survived cardiac arrest uh, had uh, this experience. We looked at uh, 26 uh, children, you know, it's not like TV, not many survive cardiac arrest. Um, most people die uh, or, you know, are profoundly affected by that. So over a 15 year period, we found 26 children who survived and 24 of them had something like near death experience. And, and it just, you know, I, wow i mean you know it really uh, set off a lifelong uh search uh, for me so one boy um, every one of these experiences is different by the way uh so you know that's another thing that uh you know studying children uh they're not culturally conditioned you know so they're not going down uh, some went down tunnels but you know they're not you know all the same story over and over again Um, Anyway, this uh, boy said that he accidentally got into the animal heaven, and then uh, he was relocated to the human heaven, and he told me about his various experiences there, and then he says to me, but was it real? Because if it is real, you tell all the old people, and so that's what I've spent most of my career doing, is trying to figure out if these experiences are real, and you know, short answer, yeah, you bet. They're absolutely real. Um, you know, I think that's the best that can be said about it, uh, too. I, uh, you know, I, I, I've been on these various uh, Facebook uh, groups, etc., and I understand all the various this, that, and the other. I, I think that if those obscure the fact that these experiences are real. Um, And I think uh, ultimately uh, very hard to understand because they come from each person's uh, personal psychology. But uh, I'll I'll tell you, uh, this little girl, um, she had infectious mononucleosis that infected her heart. And so, I mean, she was resuscitated. We took a needle and stuck it in her heart and to inject uh, epinephrine, you know, uh, life-saving medication. So she's near death. That's near death. And afterwards, uh, she tells me about seeing her grandmother. And she goes, I was just so shocked to see her, you know, because <laughs> I mean, she had died. She's like, and then she said to me, and then I was back. And so I said, well, what do you mean you were back? And she said, that's what I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> 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 I think that, you know, that that really sums it up and, and again makes me, I feel I have an obligation to share these experiences with people because I never heard uh, this young girl tell her story like that again. You know, I had that experience that, you know, of her, that's what I'm trying to figure out. You know, Six months later, when she's telling the story, you know, I was out of my body. I was, you know, I mean, because once she starts to learn about near-death experiences and she hears what other people's experiences are like, uh, you know, you know, obviously, um, she's going to, you know, change, uh, you know, to fit with, you know, people think a near-death experience should be. But that first time, where she said, "Hi," then I was back. That's what I'm trying to figure out. You know, you know, that's completely authentic. You know, that really happened. So, what questions do you have for me? I mean, I've really, um, I'll, if you want, I can briefly sketch my career for you. Um, my, I, I went about this in a very systematic way, and I published in all the mainstream medical journals. I published in The Lancet, I published in the American Medical Association's pediatric journals. Uh, so I don't have any trouble publishing uh, these sort of articles, and you know I'm always I always laugh, and you know people are saying, but that's not science, and you know this is you know pseudoscience, etc. Well, you know the American Medical Association's pediatric journals don't publish, uh, uh, you know, all there is to it. Um, so uh, here's what we did. The first thing we wanted to know was did drugs or. Um, the various psychological stresses of being in a, in a scary intensive care unit, lack of oxygen to the brain, et cetera, did they cause these? Issues? And so we did a really nice study in which we compared our children who survived cardiac arrest with identical children who had the same lack of oxygen in their you know, bloodstream, uh, also intubated, also in the scary intensive care unit, also treated with all the same medications. The only difference being they weren't near death. Um, and, and many of them were afraid they were going to die. Uh, we, we don't see uh, epiglottitis anymore. Uh, That's a pretty, pretty scary disease. Um, but it, it's a swelling uh, of your windpipe, and people who have it think they're going to die. And uh, we, we studied uh, quite a few children uh, who had epiglottitis, and they didn't have these experiences. So these are not fear death experiences. So That was the first study I did. So then I was wondering, well, what happens to people after they have this experience? And I discovered something very interesting. They um, they sort of have a post traumatic bliss syndrome. Uh, when they grow up, they tend to give more money to charity. Um, they spend more time in, uh, you know, with uh, uh, in solitary. Um, meditation or just taking walks on the beach or, you know, many of them didn't describe it as meditation. They would say, oh, I just go to the park and sit for a while. Um, they had more psychic experiences uh, than our control populations. Um, they gave more money to charity. We looked at their uh, tax returns. Um, you know, they were really uh, profoundly changed by this experience. And basically, to sum it up, if you have a near-death experience, you become a really nice person. Um, you know, so so that's the great secret of the near-death experience. Be nice. Spend time with your family. Um, try not, you know, be judgmental. They're very little judgmental, and no fear of death. So we gave them death anxiety, uh, and you know, we we studied. We actually studied uh, five different control groups to give you an idea of you know how rigorous we wanted to be. We uh, looked at uh, you know people that uh, were, you know traumatized in you know car wrecks or you know nearly drowned uh, but again not near death and you know they didn't have this transformation um we looked at people that are deeply spiritual uh you know, um, you know etc um so they, they're just we documented that they're nice people, <laughs> and, and and that's really it. Uh, you know, they uh, they tended to be spiritual but not religious, um, and and you know these are all children that have experiences. I, I'll just tell you one thing: if if you wonder what the great mystery of life is, um, I uh, this is a boy I resuscitated, and then I studied him uh, fifteen years later, and so I resuscitated him. <laughs> And he says to me that during his experience, he was told, go back, Bobby, you have a job to do. So I was young then. I was, you know, in my 30s. You know, I was kind of jaded about all this. And when you do intensive care unit medicine, you know, you can get callous. And so I'm thinking to myself, right, you got a job. You're going to cure cancer. You're going to, you know, save the world, et cetera, you know. All right, so, so I'll, you know, I'll bite, you know, tell me, so, so what's your big job? What, what's your job? I asked him 15 years later. He looks at me and he goes, I already told you what my job was. Um, he had a small construction company that he hired all his high school buddies. And he says, you know, I mean, those numbnuts, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be out of work. Uh, they wouldn't be able to support their families if it weren't for me. <laughs> but, so that's, you know, that's the, the big secret, um that, you know, that, yeah, we all have a reason for living. Uh, we all have, uh, I, I, I uh, talked to another uh, uh, you know, young man and then interviewed him later. He says, you know, it's a similar kind of thing. Um, you know, I know I've been really important, very important in life. So I said, well, what was it? He said, well, I don't know what it was. He says, you know, maybe I walked across the street and caused some car to break. And then that kept that car from being in an accident, and you know, and and it changed that family's life. But I don't know what it was, but I know that we're all interconnected. We're all here for not reasons to learn lessons of love. Okay, so we showed that so we showed that the experience is real, it happens to people when they die. Um so well, think about that. So that means the process of death is that um, at the point of death, you have an expanded sense of consciousness that goes beyond your physical body. You know, I always thought, and I think most, you know, medical scientists think, you know, when your brain dies, your consciousness just winks out. Um, And by the way, uh, you know, um, this uh, study, uh, we did a clinical study, but a guy named Jim Winery did a study uh, in the, (laughs) Only the military can do this kind of study. uh, Fighter pilots, and they whirled them in a centrifuge really fast to try to understand what are the g-forces, you know, that they can, uh, you know, survive. Um, So they don't want to build their aircraft to go faster than humans can uh, fly them. So they whirl them to the point of death. And his fighter pilots had the exact same experience of my kids, which is basically they remain, they... They don't remember anything. You know, the girl, I stuck the needle in her heart. You know, she didn't re- even remember coming to my office. Um, so that's the short-term memory. gets lost, as we know it does in trauma. And then these fighter pilots, at the very point where it was determined that blood flow was stopping, you know, and they had to shut down the centrifuge, consciousness returned. And they had something very similar to your death experience. The body experiences, you know, uh, bright lights, uh, etc. Okay, so it really happens to us when we die, transforms our life. We learn that um, life is here, you know, we're we're here to learn lessons of love and that our ordinary (laughs) pursuits are what is important uh, and, you know, try to be nice. Um, All right, so my next question was, so when children die, they have this experience of entering into a domain in which all information exists. And adults describe this as well. Uh, and it's timeless and it's spaceless. So, well, and they encounter something called God. Well, we can't prove the existence of God, <laughs> you know? I mean, that was just, that's their perception. you know? And I just used the word God because, Every single child that I interviewed said God. You know, they didn't say a higher power, blah, blah, blah. Um, You know, um, so, you know, I, so great working with kids. I can just tell you that much. <laughs> I was at a, I, I gave a lecture once, and I was talking about God, 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 God. And a woman came up to me afterwards, and she said, you know, your lecture was, like, so terrible. Uh, I don't believe in God. I believe in a higher power. I mean, so that's why it's great to talk to kids because you know, they don't, they, they have more. Yeah, they don't worry they, about
1: they, definitions.
0: Right, the more simplistic and real view of life. Okay, so I can't, we can't, you know, we don't know if there's really a God, but is there a, a domain of reality in which there's no time and space and all information is contained in it. And it turns out, yes. Uh, Theoretical physicists describe that reality. And um, uh, information theory, complex systems theory, um, all of these things. um, Now, I'm not saying that information theory and complex systems theory uh, validate an all informational universe. However, okay, what is complex systems? Complex systems theory underlines most of the modern scientific use, even economics, you know, etc. And what it means is that uh, there's um, really invisible patterns in our life, you know, like let's take a rainforest. Uh, complex systems theory can predict when that rainforest is going to break, you know, you, burn, I'm just making these numbers up, but you know, you can burn 50% of it and it'll grow back. But then there becomes a certain point when it goes outside of the boundaries of its domain and it deteriorates uh, and you know, evolves into something. Okay, so complex systems theory says that immaterial forces, forces that we can't see dictate the material world. So does information theory. Um, so, well, that is that that's huge because by and large, you know, when I, I trained at Johns Hopkins, um, you know, we didn't believe that immaterial forces uh, exist. Um, we think the brain dictates, you know, kind, and that the external world is sort of a mechanical system of. Uh, Atoms and molecules, and uh, you know, becoming more and more complex, and all of that uh, came through, uh, uh, you know, the you know the um, forces of evolution. So, so I, I became interested in this. Um, well, the only way I knew how to figure out if this was true was to learn to remote view, and um, for those of you who want to learn to remote view don't read anything about it on the internet. (laughs) I teach a a lot of people remote viewing. And the first thing I say is, don't look it up on the internet. You know, and I think that's unfortunate uh, that there's so many con men and hucksters, you know, this, that, and the other. There's probably only maybe, I'm gonna guess, three or 4,000 people in this country uh, who can uh, reliably remote view to the military standards. And uh, of course, the military has been remote viewing for, I don't know, 30 years. Uh, they certainly get funded for it every year, uh, one way or another. So, you know, obviously uh, they think it works. Um, but uh, I went to the military remote viewers and uh, learned to remote view. And it's just a startling, disorienting experience. And I learned firsthand that there is, in fact, An informational universe that uh, we know. The 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 lessons I learned from remote viewing were exactly what the children told me about the near. Okay, so what's remote viewing? Well, I'll just give you an example. Um, Let's say I want you to remote view the Eiffel Tower. All right. So I'll make up a eight digit number that corresponds to the Eiffel. So as soon as I do that. In the informational universe, that number is now, it's like the address of the iPhone. Okay, I can then give you just the number, nothing else. Just that number. And it's a protocol that takes, I don't know, an hour and a half. Um, uh, you, know, it's, it's not, it's, you know, it's not like what people think, they just like, oh, I know what it is. Uh, In fact, those types of experiences are specifically discarded uh, in military mode. Um, And you go through that protocol, and sure enough, at the end of it, um, you have described the Eiffel Tower. Uh, You haven't named it, because, of course, names are what we humans, you know. I mean, those of you who read the Bible, remember that God told Adam to name everything. So when you go into the informational universe, nothing has a name. But otherwise, you can completely describe it so that, you know, anybody can look at your description and say, wow, that looks like the Eiffel Tower, doesn't it? And you can draw a picture that looks exactly like the Eiffel Tower. And to do that is just, it's so counterintuitive. I mean, it it really seems impossible. Um, And yet, it's real. I mean, and, and I, I think it's so counterintuitive. You know, I've worked with lots of people that don't believe it. and I'll, I'll tell you what, what happens. Here's a typical thing, you know. Um, this happened recently on Facebook, but it's happened to be dozens of times. People will say, well, if remote, remote viewing is real, then, you know, I have something in my house Remember,
1: I've seen a lot of so, that, yeah.
0: So, then I go ahead and remote view it. In fact, um... Uh, I did a demonstration uh, for uh, the uh, called uh, Spiritist Society, and they had me do it right on stage. And, you know, so I'm like thinking, oh, my God, what if I can't do it? But I did. Um, and by and large, those demonstrations were completely unconvincing. I wouldn't say anybody that has has seen those demonstrations and goes, wow, the informational universe, you know, (laughs) and more importantly, those who've experienced this informational universe through remote viewing, they think that they encounter God. So I personally have never had, you know, I, I sort of have the, I don't know, I just stick to the protocol and it worked. Um, but it's not unusual for uh, uh, me to uh, teach someone to remote view. And, and that's a whole different thing than demonstrating it for them. When they actually do it themselves, sure enough, they tell me basically, I mean, it's really word for word what the children tell me. And that's why it's nice that I'm able to hear these experiences directly from the children. Because it has a, a validation it and, and a, you know, a sense of awe. And, uh, you know, I realize now that, you know, on some level, we know everything. And, and God was, you know, God was talking to me. And I've even flipped around the other way. I, I was working with this one woman and she couldn't remove you. She, she wouldn't follow the protocol. And I'm just like, oh, my God. Because mostly, I would say, I, I don't know, uh, just about everybody that I teach to remove you. can. But anyway, she didn't. So then I just said to her, This is very religious. I said, Well, just have God tell you the answer. You know, pray. Just have God tell you the answer. And she was remote viewing a waterfall. And she looked at me in wonder and says to me, Well, God said it's a waterfall. So remember, she's starting from an eight-digit number. That could be anything. I mean, it could be anywhere in the world, it could be a person. It could be a disease state. I mean, you know. So this is, you know, my my professors at Johns Hopkins used to say, "Coincidence is the tool of the lazy mind." <laughs> so people are just saying, "Oh, it's, it's, it's you know, lucky guess on her part. She just guessed that it was the uh, you know waterfall." <laughs> they have lazy minds. Um, That's that's for sure. Okay, so I learned your remote view. And, you know, so, uh, you know, and I think that's, you know, at least for me, that's as far as, you know, I don't think you need to go any further, but um, just the knowledge that we'll all have this experience when we die, and I know you want to ask me a question. Let me just finish one thought, Darren. Um, Here's the deal. When I started this research, um, Raymond Moody, by the way, is my brother-in-law and one of my best friends. Um, So, you know, he wrote the original book uh, on adult near-death experiences, you know, and he challenged me to uh, do a study on children. Um, It was thought that these experiences were were crazy, you know, that people didn't, you know, they're mentally ill or something, you know, they're just making this up. Well, we've come a long way from that, Um, you know, through, uh, you know, I think through uh, my research and others, um, Mario Beauregard at the University of Montreal, um, you know, have shown that there's specific areas in the brain that permit us to have spiritual experience. So now the objection that I hear is, well, doesn't, your brain just create this when you're dying. So you have, on the one hand, you have people that saying, wow, I had a near death experience when I died and I learned so much from it. And then now, you know, 20 years later, people don't say, oh, you're crazy. They say, well, didn't that just happen in your brain? I mean, isn't there a part of your brain that just causes that experience when you die? Well, Darren, they're, they're saying the same thing. they just don't realize it because they're just, you know, most people aren't up on on modern neuroscience. But yeah, everything happens in our brain. Every single experience we have, our our brain is just sitting, you know, it's like, you know, sitting in darkness, just getting sensory input from the outside world. If it gets that sensory input through remote viewing, it does the same thing with it. If a blind person gets visual sensory input through, you know, uh, these tactile vests they put on them, Starts having visual uh, experiences, uh, so so it doesn't even depend on the receptor organ for the brain to make sense of things. Every experience we have is caused by the brain, and yet I don't hear people say, "Well, uh, you know, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, uh, I saw you walking the other day, and that was just your brain doing it." <laughs> you know, I, I mean. So, so that's right, these are not after death experiences. These don't happen to people that are brain dead. Um, they certainly come as close to death as you possibly can get. Uh, I'm not disputing that. And there have been studies of, uh, you know, people that flatline their EEG, but they still have some residual brain activity. Um, So, and all experiences we have are caused by the brain. So stop struggling against, you know, this is gonna happen to everyone. I mean, so, but I think there's some people, I mean, let's face it, if I was suddenly joined by an angel, Darren, and he sat next to me, said, you know, Dr. Morse is right. (laughs) Well, some people would see that as proof and other people would say, you know, well, that was just some sort of mass hallucination. I mean, each person has their own right to do with this information what they will. Um, but I think you're really missing out. Um, the, you know, the, you're you're missing out on the lessons it teaches. And, it, uh, and since most people have had spiritual experiences, um, you know, all that happens is people start doubt their own. Spiritual experience. Okay.
1: <laughs> sorry. sorry <laughs> so okay. so you you mentioned at the end there that um certainly every experience we have is caused by the brain so what would that yeah. mean for these experiences who come back you know assured that we do continue after the death of the brain that the brain is not the seat of or the creator of consciousness and that there is an afterlife i suppose to put it simply
0: But that is, uh, that is an element of faith. I mean, that I mean, so, you know, as a medical scientist, I think we can distinguish between, you know, what is faith, and what we can prove. But, on the other hand, it's not just my research, by the way, this research has been in the scientific and medical literature for over 100 years, and not published in the New Age, you know, journal, but, published in the American Heart Association's uh, journal called Heart. They, you know, a hundred years ago, um, published a paper saying that when people die, they perceive uh, a transcendental state. Okay, so, so, I mean, let's just think about it, Darren. All right, so w- when you die, you're going to, your consciousness expands beyond the boundaries of your body. <laughs> Um, many people have out of body experiences. Many don't. Um, much of it is cultural conditioning. Absolutely. People in Micronesia have different experiences, than people in Africa. We've studied people in Japan, and they have very different experiences. So of course, you know, everybody has a experience of reality. And you think you see God. You're given a an, a, a hug. One, a, a physician friend of mine said it the best. He said. When you die, you don't die alone. So if you have a loved one, you know, who's been murdered, he, he had, was in the process of being murdered, um, you know, and you're afraid of what's happening to them, you know, you can be secure that they're dying in an endless sea of love. And, you know, and, and that alone is very comforting to people. Uh, I, I've, I have hundreds of letters from uh, mothers mostly say, you know, I just hated what you did to my son when he was dying, you know, you took him into this room, you stuck him pulling needles, put tubes in him, you know, and now I see from your research that he wasn't feeling any of it, you know, that he was having. Okay, so all right, so that's what happens when we die, and we know it from experimental research from Jim Winnery's research on naval pilots, well, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think you have to pretty much uh, have no common sense whatsoever. If, if, if when people die, uh, they see God, have an expanded sense of consciousness, suddenly realize that their life was about learning lessons of love, and even if they're Nazi prison guards, get a hug and say, good job, you did your best. Um, Well, (laughs) that certainly sounds like you're going to live, you're going to live after we die. I mean, sounds like it to me, but if you wanted to draw the scientific line and say, oh, no, that's just some sort of bizarre hallucination that happens to the dying brain, and why would evolution even create such an experience? But anyway, um, you know, sure. I mean, I, I don't see how you can argue with it, uh, it, it really. Uh, I've read just about every book on you know proof of life after death and scientific proof of life after death. And they really break down on that. point. They just, you know, that I mean, it, you know, if, if you choose to not see, you know, like, for, for example, Darren, um, I, I don't know, you're in the UK. So you tell me that, you know, I, I, I'll bet you would tell me that there's actually a tower of london mm-hmm. oh so, if you have you know if i wanted to i could certainly say you know come on prove it you know you just you know this is some weird hallucination that you're having um and you could not prove to me that there's an eiffel tower i mean you could send me pictures and i could tell you they were doctored photos or photoshopped or You could, uh, you know, you could show me other people talking about the experience, just like the near-death experience. You know, we could have a club of people that have actually seen the Eiffel Tower, and uh, you could have me go to their lectures and conferences, and sure, I mean, if I don't believe it, I don't believe it, and that's all there is to it, but you have to be, I mean, let's just be real. You have to pretty be. Thick-headed. If if you don't think that a child that told me that, <laughs> that she saw Jesus sitting on a log and uh, you know told her um, that uh, you know that you could come with her with with him, but you'd never see your mother and father again, and uh, you know you'd never realize your potential on this earth. Well. <laughs> I don't know. So uh, that's a pretty. And think of, I mean, that's a pretty weird hallucination to have, anyway. Um, hallucinations mean a dysfunction of the brain. You know, I mean, but if if you want to believe that that girl is just, you know, just making up some story, you know, then I, I don't see. I don't. I certainly don't feel I can. Do it, and nor have I seen any uh, compelling arguments against it. Uh, Bob Bigelow just had a. Uh, uh a um
1: a competition
0: yeah i had a competition for life after death i read them all. i didn't think any of them proved but i think they make a compelling case for it i think that certainly they uh there's one guy on the internet i'm just blocking on his name but he's great he says the evidence for a near-death experience would be accepted in a court of law so, you know, but I think that I want to believe it. I don't think that you know, it's kind of like remote viewing. You know, um, I notice these people, that they want me to remote view for them, then I do it. Then they just, I don't know, they just dismiss it, you know, but they never want to learn themselves. And that's why I uh, learned to remote view because I, I felt the same way. I felt I couldn't, you know, and like I said, I would say, you know, the million, military is only trained, well, it's in terms of thousands, civilians, uh, who can reliably remote view. So I understand why people don't believe it, because I mean, we have 380 million people in the country and, uh, you know, and uh, I'm telling you everything on the internet about uh, remote viewing is garbage. So that's a long answer to your question, I, you know, but I hope it was helpful because you really, you know, I, I would, people would say these intense spiritual experiences, and then they would say, but it wasn't science, you know, I know that it didn't really happen. And the opposite has happened to me, I, I've talked to skeptics, and after really talking to them, I discover that they have had a spiritual experience that could start a religion, um, you know. Uh, But, you know, uh, I'll give, uh, I have a neuroscientist friend who just told me this is all, you know, BS. And um, so I started to talk to him. And sure enough, he had a profound near-death experience when he was 12 years old. And then he told uh, that he was uh, in the Catholic Church. He told the priest about it. And the priest called his parents up and said, he's saying he sees God and you know, that, that's not the way it works. You know, you know don't, don't come around here, uh, you know, spouting uh, this uh, kind of nonsense. And so that just made him so angry, but, you know, he didn't embrace his own experience. And so that just makes me sad. I, I feel sad that, um, it, oddly enough, it's that people don't understand the science. The science certainly supports that near-death experiences are real. If near-death experiences are real, well, there probably is life after death. (laughs) Kind of hard to get away from that. Um, But there's a lot of people out there that are, I think their anger comes because they have unresolved spiritual. But I've given up, you know. Now I think, you know, everybody, we're here to learn lessons of love. Everybody has their own path. So it, it still makes me sad. Uh, read these kinds of uh, experiences and the way people are uh, you know really dismissive of their own spirituality our, our culture doesn't nourish spirituality either so um you know it, um, it, it doesn't we, we don't uh, you know, so you know not like uh, I think the other people um, certainly uh, India and uh, you know tibet you know they meditated for a thousand years. <laughs> So, okay, let's think about that, Darren. So you would have to say, agree, that they are the masters of consciousness. I mean, they meditated for a thousand years, over a thousand years. Our country's only been around for a couple hundred years. Um, You know, they didn't stop meditating until the Red Chinese uh, took over Tibet, Um, which, oddly enough, was a good thing because all those refugees went down to India and then they came to this country and taught us yoga and taught us you know spirituality. Uh, so but so what did these people learn from meditation? And and they are very intellectually rigorous. They didn't just meditate, they learned geography, they learned mathematics, they, you know, they you know they were more advanced, I think, than modern Americans. Uh, in terms of uh, their intellect and their approach uh, to thinking and critical uh, thinking. Say near-death experiences are real. Consciousness persists after we die. They even go further. They say that the same experience of the near-death experience can be uh, attained through meditation. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, well, these are To take you know eight hours a day for dozens of years, um, and remember in those days the world was quiet, uh, you know, it's very hard to find a quiet place here, you know, when they're they're, they're sitting in their uh monk cells, um, but they reached that conclusion, and so I don't know why we would doubt the masters, um, and furthermore, uh, Jewish sages. In a totally different part of the country, uh, in what's now Eastern Europe, with no uh, relationship to uh, the Tibetan monks. And they didn't last for 1,000 a a thousand years, but they lasted for hundreds of years. And they too came to the same conclusion. Uh, they concluded exactly what we've learned from remote viewing that one half of our brain is for critical thinking, and one half of our brain is for communicating with. And they describe God exactly the way children describe God in their death experience. You know, I don't know, my children aren't reading, you know, Jewish sages, and yet they say it's a domain of all knowledge, of all compassion, of uh, that its wisdom it teaches you the meaning of life, spiritual uh, healing, you know, all that occurs. So there's no doubt that such a domain occurs. In fact, um, you know. That's why theoretical physicists all write these spiritual books in their part time, (laughs) because that's that's what science is teaching us. Uh, Albert Einstein said that the universe is light. I've heard that from dozens of children. (laughs) You know, um, you know that uh, that that the universe was light. Um, Yeah, Albert Einstein's a scientist saying that. And he says that reality is an electromagnetic field that, uh, you know, that what we call mass is just concentrated areas of energy. And he said that, um, you know, space and time have this sort of uh, interrelated uh, existence, um, but only because we're conscious beings with the brain. You know they only exist, and uh, but they uh, they're not fundamental properties of the universe. So that's what people that have near death experiences have. That's what ancient meditators say. Um, I think it, at some point, you know, you know, you gotta say, well, maybe it's true.
1: Yeah. So how do you think that those teachings? And I'm assuming that, and I'm going to assume that personally. Um, your belief is that we do continue after physical the physical death of the brain. So, if if we take that as a true assumption, how how do you think that ties into the knowledge as you say that the brain is responsible for every kind of experience we have? So, for instance, I the reason I do currently believe in some form of continuation after death is the amalgamation of, of all different evidence from various different phenomena, such as near death experience, evidential mediumship, as you say, remote viewing things like terminal lucidity, past life memories, and all that conglomerates into one conclusion as far as I can see. Um, and yeah, but- I, I would consider the brain to be kind of, as you say, the brain creates, oh, dropped my fly swap. Um, a brain, the brain creates conscious experience, but I would say it creates the content of conscious experience in the physical form, not the, the yeah. sense of being itself. So it's more of a, um, was it Huxley that said it's a reducing valve? I mean, there, yeah, there are many a... different philosophies, like the dualistic philosophy, the idealistic philosophy, and of course the materialistic philosophy. How would would you agree with that kind of position, or what would you think about how to pair those two? You facts? don't
0: have to go to Atlas, you know, to to the non-scientists. You don't have to go to, uh, you know, uh, I trained in neuroscience. Uh, I, I wouldn't call myself a neuroscientist just because most of my uh, career was uh, intensive care medicine. Um, but I uh, did my fellowship in neuroscience. And, you know, I think if people want to learn what you just said, um, they should read Dan Eagleman's book, Live. And he points out that even colors don't exist in nature. So, so the experience of color is something we create in our brain. Everything is created in our brain, our our brain creates a model of the universe, and then it's constantly checking, you know, against that model. And think about, Uh, you know, he, he did a PBS series, and he's just so thoughtful. um, That. uh, Explaining this issue that the brain creates everything. So. For example, why aren't we nauseous when we walk down the street? I mean, if our eyes were video cameras, we would rapidly get nauseous from the constantly changing, uh, you know, points of view. And, and uh, Eagleman, you know, puts on video camera glasses and, you know, shows what it'd be like. Now, we've already created this world in our, uh, in our brain. And then, you know, we just sort of, you know, spot check uh, everyone, uh, you know, to see uh, where we are. So if you understand that, and you understand that the brain, the brain can rewire itself. I had a patient uh, who lost seventy percent of her brain, and yet she made a full recovery, even recovering her sense of humor. So where was all that? You know, I mean, so uh, I mean, and, and how does the brain rewire itself? Uh, you know, it's uh, you know, Eagleman doesn't go you know go into this but he certainly lays the groundwork for that the brain is simply a reducing agent or you know some sort of agent of consciousness I, I, I don't think you can reach any other conclusion uh, if you understand how the brain works
1: I, I certainly believe that you know you don't have to be a neuroscientist and I, I believe that you know folks like um, sorry my antivirus has just come up i think that folks like anil seth um, and others have started bringing it into the mainstream but i I don't think you really need to be a trained neuroscientist to see that reality as we know it is a hallucination in the sense that it, it is it's not reality as we see it it's reality in the way that the brain can interpret the information it receives so when we see a planet or a picture of a planet that's not the planet in reality, that's the planet as far as our brain is able to discern the information it receives.
0: I wish I could reach through this zoom and hug you. Aaron. <laughs> uh, I think of this every time I hear that the near death experience is a hallucination. <laughs> um, now, and I, and I, you know, and I, you're using the term hallucination and a non-scientific term, you know, really hallucinations are disorganized experiences of a non-functional brain. Um you know, so you know they're they're not like dreams. Uh you know, they're not coherent. They 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 I mean the near-death experience is incredibly complex. Think about it, you know, every type of uh you know visual and you know sensation you etc. Um, so yeah but using the term loosely perhaps the right, projection would be better is everything is created by our brain. And consciousness research, Darren, I went to this conference a couple of years ago on consciousness research. And the first day was arguing over what is consciousness. So, and here's here's one of my favorite fun facts. No one has any idea how memory works and how memory can be stored in the brain. And Fred Lashley, who is sort of the grandfather of memory research, at one point said, if I didn't know better, I think memory was stored outside the brain, because uh, he taught rats to run mazes and then cut big chunks out of their brain and they still could run the mazes. And, and Wilder Penfield, the father of modern neurosurgery, also came to that conclusion, that consciousness uh, does not uh, depend on brain function. Um, so, So we don't really know, you know, and and I don't, you know, for people who are objecting about the memory, sure. We know about short-term memories and we understand uh, memory clusters and that, you know, how post-traumatic stress syndrome can trigger uh, things. And we know that when you look at an apple and, um, you know, and, and remember looking at an apple, it's almost the same experience. You know, so we do know a lot about memory, but we certainly don't know where it's stored and how it can be. recalled. So non-scientists have to step up their game because, th- I mean, this is a great field if, um, you know, if you don't have any academic credential. Uh, you know, and one of my best friends uh, has no academic credentials, and he and I won uh, an international award for consciousness So, you know, step up your game and uh, figure out what consciousness is. And, you know, somebody coming outside the field, thinking outside the box, I mean, that's why you don't see someone like, uh, you know, uh, there's a guy named uh, Dan Hoffman, uh, who does a lot of interesting neuroscientific work, or uh, 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 Eagleman, Um, but they're staying in their lanes. They're not, you know, they're, they're not integrating the knowledge of the near-death experience. They're not integrating how remote viewing works uh, into their, uh, you know, into, into their work. So, and they probably never will, um, you know, I, I, the academic world being what it was. I was an intensive care unit doctor, so that helped me, you know, so I could publish lots of stuff. And I did most of my was mainstream uh, work, but I have any number of colleagues that have uh, gone into uh, consciousness research, um, you know, exploring you know so-called paranormal stuff and etc., who get shut down by their universities. So it, it has to come from uh, amateurs, but but here's an example of the contribution that we can make. Okay. Uh, in the book, Live Wire, Eagleman says, we cannot imagine a color we cannot see. He makes that flat statement. And yet, I've had a girl who had a near-death experience who made that exact same statement, except she said, where I was in heaven, I could see colors that I've never seen before. So by Eagleman's criteria, since he states, I mean, that's, that is a sentence in his book. We can't imagine a color we can't see. So by Eagleman's criteria, that tells us her experience is real because she's describing colors that she couldn't possibly describe if she hadn't actually seen them. And it all goes back to what you were saying originally. Since our brain creates reality, yeah, you know, uh, we can only create a reality that, uh, you know, that comes to us uh, with our sensor, uh, you know, sensory organs. And we can't just uh, uh, imagine stuff. Uh,
1: that we can see. I think a lot of people, when they talk about consciousness, seem to kind of confuse consciousness with the content of consciousness and the experience of consciousness because to me the question we know for a fact that you know the project is just to not use the term hallucination i suppose the projection of reality as we see it from our brains um is is of course generated in our brains but the question to me is not how does that work it is what is the the sense of awareness behind all that content. What is it that is aware of that content? What is the nature of that? And that is to me the part of it that is not necessarily generated by the physical brain, but is reduced or transceived or received, or the image of whatever it is as the brain or through the brain.
0: Yeah. So you don't have any academic credentials. You know, I read your website. It's cool. You know, it's amazing, and yet. I've been to any number of weekend consciousness con- uh, conferences, but that's the kind of thing that you hear debated, you know, at the highest levels of trying to understand consciousness. Um, I mean, you've you know that's the heart of the issue, and uh, that's that's it, you know. Uh, and the, you know, when you read the Tibetan uh, Buddhist texts on meditation, uh, you know they struggled with that same question and I think that that's absolutely true and I want to even go further than what you said. Content of, conscious, of uh, consciousness really depends on what we think and what we perceive. So one person's near-death experience you know has all sorts of realms and you know uh, you know Different types of things going on in heaven and castles, and another persons' near-death experience. They see somebody coming out of a gourd, uh, uh, going to the edge of an ocean, uh, like in Japan. That's very common. Their near-death experiences: they go to the edge of an ocean and they wave goodbye and get on a boat and go somewhere heaven. So. Yeah, that's the content, and yet there clearly is something behind the content, and this comes up with remote viewing that, um, man, you got to learn to remote view because, see, as you struggle with remote viewing, what happens to you, you know, let's take the Eiffel Tower again, so you're trying to remote view the Eiffel Tower, you're getting a lot of imagery, it's tall, it's thin, it's you know, metallic, there's people in it, you know, et cetera. So right away, your brain wants to say, oh, it's a space needle. And so then it graphs content onto this awareness or this, you know, this primal conscious experience. And so that, that's called analytic overlay. And we do analytic overlay all the time. You know, I'm doing analytic all the time, uh, analytic overlay all the time. My wife, I don't know where she is. And, you know, so right away I start, you know, thinking she's in a car accident. Um, that's analytic overlay. <laughs> that, that's, a, you know, so, so, you know, that's an example of, you know, a practical example of what you're talking about. And I think it's through um, the, when you have a, a protocol, like controlled remote viewing, it lends itself to scientific analysis. And so scientists have got to learn to remote view and then they can start to tackle the kind of question you're asking. Because, you know, I've been, well, the last conference I left early, I'd have enough. But all they're doing when they're talking about, you know, issues like you just brought up, you know, the content of consciousness versus the awareness, they're just saying the same stuff that you say that anybody says. That you know, there it's not like you know they're bringing some expertise to it. Um, and so you know, we've got to uh, you know, start moving further, uh, and really try to tease out what is the difference, but that's not going to happen till people start understanding that. Consciousness is a substrate of reality. And, um, you know, so we're not there yet. We're at a time of a paradigm shift, to be sure. And there's been, you know, seven or eight of these paradigm shifts in Western civilization. Uh, But I think it's going to be another... Well, here's what I always learned, uh, was always taught: No scientific advance can happen until all the old dinosaurs die out. So, for example, uh, the outrageous concept that you should wash your hands before you operate on patients. Invisible germs? Come on, give me a break. Um, what are you just making that up? Even though there's tons and tons of controlled studies showing that washing your hands uh, decreased mortality. But it wasn't until all the old surgeons died off that uh, you know, they started washing their hands. And you know the same thing is true for using pencils, you know, any type of type. So I still think we're twenty or thirty years away, but um, I you know I I think that uh, it's coming. You know that's that's for sure. And I think that start, starting to ask questions as you clearly are. I mean that you that's that's the heart of the issue. What you just brought up.
1: Um, so, in terms of kind of the science of remote viewing, and it is something that I'd love to learn, you know, properly. But as you say, there is so many scammers and and unofficial versions of it out there. It's difficult to find. But in terms of of the studies of remote viewing, I spoke with um, uh, Stefan Schwartz. I am sure you probably yeah. Been, and he, he seems to be almost the, the the father of scientific study of remote viewing. What kind of um, scientific research has been done to validate the reality of it? Do something about beeping
0: <laughs> there's you know i'm at home you know like we that's all fine. are that's fine <laughs> um okay so i'm so glad you got Stephen schwartz on i don't think anybody's more familiar with the literature than Stephen schwartz i don't know if he still has this on his webpage, page he even has studies showing that um you know he, he's sort of collector of studies and he's got a study showing that um, uh, bacteria work cooperatively in what seemed to be, uh, you know, some sort of consciousness uh, existing between them. And when birds turn in flight, um, you know, the same kind of thing. You know, it happens if they have some sort of telepathic awareness. Um, so, but. Controlled remote viewing studies. You know, I I, I unfortunately uh, I think that probably I've done well, there's a peer lab. There was a guy named Bob Jan, who is a engineer uh at um professor emeritus of engineering uh at Princeton University. He did tons of studies uh, on Uh, viewing. And uh, I, with a group called IRVA, did an interesting study in which we tried to systematically, you know, give uh, subjects, uh, you know, targets, you know, give six people the same target and, you know, see percentage of them. Um, We did an interesting study in which we infected uh, tomato plants uh, with the tobacco mosaic virus. And uh, we showed in that study that the controlled remote viewing protocol was really the only protocol that works. Um, the other protocols, you know, well, we even did a sham, <laughs> a sham uh, controlled remote viewing protocol in which we just sort of jumbled up all the elements, um, you know, just to see if they, uh, you know, but um, you know, that people, uh, you know, these various, we, we took all the protocols you see on the internet and we have people that just felt, you know, they have intuition. And oddly enough, uh, they usually thought they were right. Um, you know, I, you, you got to really, I, I don't know. Well, that's what, you know, remote viewing puts your feet to the fire. You get a number and then you see whether you got it or not. So unfortunately we had we, one guy said, oh, I, I got every single one right. And uh, now he's 50-50, you know, uh, he didn't get them all right. He got half of them, right? Just, you know, that, that you would expect if people were guessing. So, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And uh, the documentation I um, couldn't. Unfortunately, it comes out of the military. It has a, uh, you know, there's a lot of secrecy involved um, and has a culture. And they're not interested in public studies. They're not academics.
1: Okay, so let, let's get back to um, near-death experiences for a moment. So I'm interested in one of the main aspects of near-death experiences that made me really consider the reality of them as opposed to just being neurochemical effects of a dying brain is this, the, the veridical perception aspect of them. Um, veridical perception during the out-of-body um, stage. For example, you know, and there are many that, or at least more than enough that have taken place documented while the brain was, as you say, flatlined or in a state where it should certainly not be able to produce lucid consciousness or consciousness at all. For example, the Pam Reynolds case, um, which I'm sure you probably are aware of. Um, what are your thoughts on that kind of phenomena? Did you hear of any in your child um, reports or elsewhere? Tons,
0: of, tons and tons of them. Um, so veridical tell me what that word means again veridical perception it was um
1: it was coined by dr jan holden um and it means effectively where you where they come out of their physical body and are able to report um report events that take place accurately whether it be kind of around their physical body or in the next room or in the next state or wherever else where they shouldn't be able to basically
0: yeah okay um let me start by saying uh uh On Unsolved Mysteries, Uh, uh, we presented uh, that kind of thing. Um, I've documented any number of those kinds of cases. Uh, Children frequently had them. Um, And, uh, you know, like you say, you know, right. Um, George Ritchie, um, uh, one of the early pioneers in remote viewing uh, cetera. But, okay, now I've said that, so I've reassured you, I believe it's real, blah, blah, blah. Okay, Aaron, we now have to stitch together those beautiful insights that you had earlier with this information. There's no body to go out of. We just create this current perception that we're sort of behind our eyes with a video camera, that happens to just be um, I, I think uh, 70 or 80 percent of humans have that perception. Um, there's primitive tribes uh, which don't have that perception, which have a sort of out-of-body state all the time, and uh, they have a kind of a, a sort of a spatial sense because they're in uh, you know primarily in jungles, so they need to know uh, where they are. And their language is very interesting. You know, we say hi, how are you doing? They say where are you? You know, and, and, and where are you headed? Uh, and, uh, you know, um, they have more complex language, so they spend a lot of time on that. And when people go to live with these people, they start to develop that same sense of consciousness. And I heard uh, one of these uh, uh, women on uh, NPR was describing it. And she said it suddenly became very weird that she sort of had this sense of being out of her body and seeing a little dot. It was her that was moving around. Um, just because she was in a culture in which everybody else did that. And you know, so there's no way that she could have any kind of meaningful social relationship with uh, people who have a very different uh, reference uh, for reality. So it's, when we say that it's all models, then we have an internal model. Well, that's what we mean. So that means that the out-of-body experience is just a different model. That's why when I said to you I just say it's an expanded sense of consciousness that you know they're they're going more into the informational universe so they're picking up more information to put into their mental model. But the out-of-body experience Uh, First of all, lots of people have out-of-body experiences and are not near death. Um, Lots of people uh, just wake up in the middle of the night and take a little stroll and, um, (laughs) you know, look back and see their body. So, and they're not near death. Um, So, you know, and there really didn't, you know, there was like back in the 18th century, Um, a lot of silver cord experience. People are sort of tethered to their body by a silver. So I always like to tell uh, Raymond that uh, his tunnel swallowed up the silver cord because we don't hear those kinds of experiences. And Michael Sabon did an interesting study um, of his, he's a, a cardiologist of his patients. And, you know, Uh, You know, uh, I can't remember, I'm just making these numbers up. A significant portion of them did not have uh, an out-of-body experience. So, uh, you know, I don't see that as any way, you know, that's just another way that the brain is modeling reality. And, you know, we we just have to understand it at that. And so then, but, you know, I I don't actually do the first time i talked about that because usually this kind of conversation you know, is then interpreted as, oh, so you don't believe out-of-body experiences are real. <laughs> uh, yes, you can get real information during a near-death experience that cannot be explained by exposure to the senses, um, you know, to the ordinary sense, just like remote viewing. So obviously we as human beings have that ability. Um, but, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm sort of giving a more advanced understanding of the out-of-body. And I, I, I really like to do this because then a lot of people they they, they go, well, I, one woman, she's really bitter almost her um, she was in a serious car accident, it was very close with her dad. she's like, well, why didn't my dad you know everybody else is you know meeting their dad and they die she said all I had was suddenly, I thought I was getting a great hug from my dad, you know, so I was probably just remembering, you know, some great hug. No, she was getting a great hug from her dad in real time during her experience. And I think she's um, just, you know, but the out-of-body experience isn't that floating out of your body, going down a tunnel, and then seeing a light and meeting dead relatives. Well, sure. Westerners have that experience quite a bit. Um, I've worked with prisoners, um, often them to remote view, uh, have uh, heard their near-death experiences, and you know that often can't read, um, and they have very different experience. Uh, yet they are certainly perceiving things that are outside uh, the fear of body. I'll tell you a funny one. Um, uh, I, this uh, office nurse that I worked with. Uh, I was in pediatric intensive care, but you just sort of, you know, you meet all the intensive care uh, folk. So um, she's um, she's telling uh, uh, in front of the, uh, you know, the nurse and doctor talking in front of the patient, and um, she's telling how she already averted him, brought him back to life. And the guy pipes up and he says, no, you didn't. He said, your machine wasn't even plugged in. <laughs> Remember, he's strapped on a gurney. And by the way, we close their eyes, Karen. So people who think that this is some sort of, you know, that the, the light is the operating room light or something like that, we keep their eyes shut. We don't, we don't want, you know, dirt falling in their eyes. And stuff. Um, so he, he says, your machine wasn't even plugged in. <laughs> so obviously that was outside his point of, uh, point of uh, view. And sure enough, um, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they sheepishly uh, come back and say, well, you were right. Uh, the machine wasn't plugged in, um, you know, and then, you know, in the hubbub of resuscitation, et cetera, it, you can certainly put the paddles on somebody and not realize you're not doing
1: anything. Mm-hmm. So I suppose the question then becomes, again, referring back to what we said earlier about the brain creating the, the projection of reality as we see it, how, then can it be that if the perceptions that people are seeing outside of the body or from a different perspective of the awareness, which isn't the content of consciousness, but is the awareness of it, how are they seeing information in the projected reality that our brain is creating and yet not from the point of view of sensory input to the brain? So, so yeah, yeah. if you know what I mean. So, you know,
0: that's, that, that's why then we have to turn to the neuroscientists. And so I, I cannot recommend this book. It's easy to read. um, And he did a PBS series on the brain as well, so you can just watch it. But he makes the point very clearly that the brain takes any input and makes sense of it and creates a model from it. So I I sort of quickly went over, but he does this fascinating uh, thing where he, People who are blind, he takes a video camera and then those signals are translated into just bumps on their chest with a tactile vest. And that information is decoded by the brain as visual information. And he says in there very clearly, I mean, as in in a single sentence, that the brain makes sense of any information that comes to it from any source. Now, of course, he's not, you know, he's not thinking of the source of remote viewing. He's not thinking of the, you know, the expanded sense of consciousness and awareness, which exposes us to, um, uh, you know, uh, to more information. And it doesn't surprise me that people create a model of being out of the brain, because that sort of makes sense when you're, you're suddenly starting to perceive information from all around you. Well, sure, then you've got to revise your model. You got to start seeing, you know, as if you're, uh... but again, I have the advantage of these are patients that by and large have resuscitated myself, heard their stories for the first time that they told anyone. And sure, um, you know, One young man told me that uh, during his near-death experience, he was headed toward this tunnel. He looked down, and he saw his grandfather hugging his mom. Uh, The grandfather had come from out of town. Uh, The young man had no idea uh, and no expectation that his grandfather would be there. That kind of stuff happens all the time. Uh, An adult uh, that I interviewed, um, she was... uh, I have seven or eight uh, consecutive cardiac arrests. She uh, couldn't communicate with anybody in the waiting room, you know, her immediate family. She just, you know, they were so anxious and, you know, filled with their own emotions that she couldn't get through to them. So she went to her home. She gave information uh, to her son who was there. And then the son came and told them all, you know, by the way, mom says she's all right. And sure enough, when mom woke up, you know she validates the story by saying, "You know, sure." But remember that this reality is timeless and spaceless. So this is just—I mean, this is just her mental models of you know that she traveled to the home. I mean, the soul's not a gaseous vapor. That uh, you know, that it's sort of like wisp of smoke that you know, then can sort of move around all on their own. Uh, it's not like that at all. It's an informational universe. Our brain is a reducing agent, as you said, and it's just as simple as that. And we take whatever information uh, that we get, and we create mental models. And if they're right, and uh, I certainly believe wholeheartedly that children who have near-death experiences, when they say, we're here to learn lessons of love, and we study them 50 years later, sure enough, their lives embody the idea of learning lessons of love. Um, Well, so that makes sense. I mean, we have to interact with people. We have to have some domain of reality in which we can learn these lessons. We have to... uh, have emotions, be angry. Um, I've done uh, things that certainly I'm not proud of, uh, you know, the, you know, and um, that's how we learn our lessons. I mean, it's just you know, and and we can't learn them unless we have the system of a brain inside a biological body that can interact with something that we perceive as reality. And and this is all over we realized that it's this life that isn't real. <laughs> and that, again, everything I just learned so much from kids. I just, I, I just think it's my mission to share with people what I learned from kids. Because one kid says to me, he makes this exact same point, and then he goes, yeah, th- you know, this is real, but that other place was realer than real.
1: And that's a very common report, especially from children and both and adults as well who experience near-death experiences. I wonder a lot of people, when they think of death, the first thing they're concerned about is never seeing their loved ones again. And yet, as you say, especially in Western culture, we hear of near-death experiences in which they do meet their loved ones and that seems to be backed up by things like evidential mediumship and various things like that where information is given that the medium themselves didn't know and perhaps only the the relative and the person the sitter knew um, which seems to validate the possibility that there is some form of reunion that can that the loved one still exists in another form what do you think to that kind of experience do you think that those who visit their or find their loved ones after death are genuinely their yep. loved ones
0: yeah, so this is where I'm putting my energies now. You know, is I, I'm sort of done. You know, I, I gave you my sequence, and I, I think at least for me, that's as far as I can go. Um, you know, these, these experiences are real, and this informational reality that's filled with unconditional love is real and seems to be the substrate of you. So, now, we don't have to talk about the other side, we don't have to, um, you know, uh, bring in a lot of woo-woo paranormal science because 80% of the matter in the universe is invisible to us. And it's not like it's in some other place. It's right here. So 80% of the matter of reality is intermingled with this reality we see. So we have no idea what uh, that uh, reality is is going on, but it certainly uh, would be then a fertile place uh, for people, um, to, uh, you know, to go when they leave this universe. Maybe they've got other lessons to learn, and those are other domains. Um, you know, they're both of the same subatomic particles that are in this reality that we see are uh, not identical ones, but they're, you know, in the same family. Quarks, you know, have all certain quarks that are in this reality, and there's certain quarks that are the basis of other realities. So, and this is what I was telling you before, that just my heart breaks when when people don't see the obvious, that there obviously is something else. And you don't have to look to evidential medianship. About uh, easily 50% of American spouses see or perceive uh, their uh, loved one after he or she dies. Uh, 75% in other cultures, Japanese culture, have that experience. But in this culture, they're just dismissed as a crazy widow's fantasy. You know, they're just, they're just dismissed. And, you know, that's why I'm so firm on the scientific backing of the near-death experience. Because if near-death experiences are real, then all these other experiences are real. And, and, you know, I mean, it, it's just a whole different way of looking at reality. And when I work with grieving parents, you know, you know, I talk to them about, that. they have to pay attention, they have to, um, be aware because sometimes uh, the message comes uh, I had uh, one um, parents of a patient who felt that them getting a parking space at a particular moment was an intervention and I see no reason not to believe it, um, it, it why not um, my mother since she knows that I'm a concrete thinker and You know, don't really, (laughs) I don't know. This stuff is hard for me to believe. Um, So uh, she told me that she would uh, send me dimes. um, You know, after she passed to communicate with me. And I can't tell you how many times I have found dimes in places where there's no dimes. Where there's no way that a dime could get there. And, um, yeah, I mean, so it's people, you have to open your hearts and open your minds because you are having these experiences. And by and large, communications do, um, in my experience. My experience is that often the frustration and anxiety prevents you from having the experience. That's very, but um, just, you know, look around, is, um, and, you know, sometimes I think that mediums cloud the issue uh, because, uh, you know, then there's a controversy, are they real? Are they con artists? Are they doing cold reads? Are the, you know, whereas uh, I find that um, most people either have these experiences, grieving parents, or, They can have them, uh, you know, by, there's two techniques that I use. One is to have them make a sincere thought before they go to bed, and then write down the first thought that they have in the morning in a journal. Do this, you know, for weeks. And by and large, they start to see a communication coming the other uh, way I do uh, is to encourage is to, for people to engage in rituals which are meaningful to their loved ones. So for example, this young man died in a motorcycle accident. Um, his uh, habit was to come home from school and then he and his mom would talk for an hour and she'd bake cookies and you know, all this kind of thing. So um, I, I encouraged her to do that, even though you know, uh, you know, he obviously wasn't present just to recreate that experience. And sure enough, a communication So yeah, uh, that's a long answer to say yes. You know, I I think that uh, after-death communications are an obvious, um, uh, you know, uh, I guess, you know, building on the knowledge that near-death experiences are real.
1: Okay, great. So I think the last thing I'd like to go into is more on a personal basis and just confer- you're definitely happy to go into this area. Mm-hmm. Okay. Perfect. Because I think I know the internet and a lot of people will kind of use, try to use your past as a way to kind of discredit your work. So w- would you like to just kind of go over 2012? What, what happened? Yeah.
0: I was in a really a terrible marriage with, um, Uh, I had a midlife crisis. married a woman 17 years younger than me, Um, you know, and and came with all that that was involved. I had uh, retired from medicine um, as taking a drug called interferon. And this is a, makes you really angry and irritable. Um, And... uh, uh, stepdaughter had thrown up on herself uh, and in a fit of rage, uh, I just took her and just put her in the tub of water. You know, just like, I'm going to just wash you off. You know, I'm going to get that vomit off. And she was terrified. Uh, I don't think the fact that I was taking interferon <laughs> made it a, any better experience for her. Um, you know, I certainly uh, deserved to be punished for it. I uh, went to prison for two years. Great experience, by the way. Big part of my spiritual Taught people were remote view. Taught fellow prisoners to meditate. But, you know, that's a story, but um, yeah, um, it was a crime, and I did it. Uh, so, you know, well, I, I just want to say one thing since you mentioned dinner. So, alrighty, okay. So that's what happened. So this. Somehow got turned into that I was waterboarding her, and um, and it was like crazy. I mean, you know, it, it, you could argue that it was very difficult for me to get a fair trial. Luckily, I had a great juror um, who got it right. But I was then charged with four counts of waterboarding, um, and uh, you know, and uh, those uh, you know uh, convicted me of misdemeanors. You know, being with her uh, while I was washing her hair, but certainly, you know, I wasn't uh, convicted of uh, torturing her. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately, you know, a lot of that, uh, you know, went crazy. And then, you know, the way the world is, it's not like somebody comes afterwards and cleans up and says, oh, by the way, <laughs> he didn't, he, he didn't actually waterboard her. Oops, our bad. Um, he really just got uh, angry because she threw up on herself and uh, behaved in a totally, uh, you know, and one act of violence can undo a lifetime of good work. You know, so one act of anger could do that. So, you know, that's people have to assess that for themselves. Uh, I, I haven't personally, uh, you know, had, um, you know, I'm still invited to lectures when I got out. I was afraid that I'd be ostracized, and I was welcomed back to the various uh, research, you know, and research partners, you know, et cetera. Um, my family, you know, they completely understood. My brother wrote to me every day when I was in prison, and and I learned so much. Darren, I learned that I have eight friends, and they weren't even who I thought they were (laughs) and I not well I can just tell you you don't know who your friends are I don't think anybody has until that so that's great I mean I learned that I had eight friends and you know my trial was about the whole waterboarding and all that kind of stuff but I never denied what I did uh, that I was convicted of and you know I've made restitution. And I have a good relationship uh, with my stepdaughter now. Really touched that, uh, you know, that uh, she lets me hold my grandchild and, uh, you know, and lets me be the grandchild since not really my logical child. And, you know, so I've done that work. And, you know, that's important work to do. I mean, you can't just literally say, oh, I'm learning lessons in love. You have to actually learn them.
1: Hmm. And it shows in the actions more than the words.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I'll tell you this much. You know, I told you how remote viewing taught me that, um, you know, that near-death experiences are at least that aspect of it are real. This statement that we're here on earth to learn lessons of love. I absolutely believe it. My own life totally shows, um, you know, uh, did something wrong, went to prison, and then I did the hard work of uh, re-establishing a relationship and Lermellis, you Yeah,
1: Great. Well, I you know, really appreciate the openness, and I think, you know, we can always look back on things that we've done in the past and beat ourselves up, but it's, I think the most important thing is to look at what those experiences taught us and how we've developed as a person as a result of them.
0: I have a real interest in working uh, with prisoners. And with uh, drug abuse, so I think I have a unique understanding of what's going on in prison. And um, I'll tell you, when I was released, um, one guy who had sort of served as my protector, um, and I don't even know why—I I wasn't, didn't even know him, I wasn't uh, close to him. And uh, I once asked him, you know, why, why do you stick up for me like this? And he just said, "You shouldn't be here," but. And I'm not, you know, I did not cry, sure. but um, he said to me when I left, he said, tell them we ain't animals, because they're not, they're not animals. Um, and, you know, I have unique ideas of how, you know, more holistic approach of looking at heroin addiction, because half a prison is heroin addicts, and illiteracy, uh, 20%. Uh, you know that's and yet they're as smart you know as in, so as smart as my medical students, so uh, you know I'm looking forward to start to work with the population because I feel like I have a particular
1: okay, great, so I suppose the last question and the uh, probably one of the most important ones, especially I'm sure that Paul would be interested in um what would you say to those who are adamant that there is no evidence for near death experiences there is no evidence for an afterlife or life after physical death and there's no evidence of anything other than the brain creates everything about us and once it's gone we're gone forever?
0: Well you're certainly uh, you know the preaching the party line. Um, so you know I, and uh, I think that one mistake that people make uh, is that we're always looking for you know the, the slogan Exceptional claims require exceptional evidence. Absolutely wrong. You know, I, I can I have shown people exceptional evidence over and over again. No, it's it's the new paradigm that's coming. It's gonna take thousands of tiny research studies, it's gonna take a better understanding of the brain, it's gonna be you know the integration of cognitive neuroscience. And um, religion, and information theory, and you know, uh, engineers that uh, use complex system theory on a you know daily basis. You know that's that's what it takes. It, It it really requires a paradigm shift. And I don't think right now. You know, I mean, if you, yeah, I mean, I think that's the scientific party line. So, you know, when you're in the middle of a paradigm shift. Uh, you know it's you know 30 years from now you know those same people will say well of course we knew it all well.
1: mm, along <laughs> yeah
0: yeah we're in a throes of a paradigm shift and it's going to come from all different areas just like all the other paradigms it's going to come from anthropology um, i mean jim Winnery published his studies Experimental studies that documented that near-death experiences are real published them in aeronautics journals. You know, so it just you know takes somebody like me, or frankly Bob Bigelow. You know, he's he with the National Institute of Discovery Science. You know, just a genius at, at blending different disciplines. Um, you know, but that's what it's going to take. Uh, yeah. um, and uh, I. I I think that for those who say the science shows this, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's, you went to, here's what I find. The, if you go to an older neurologist, yeah, they'll tell you that straight out. But younger neurologists are fascinated by it. I think that any neuroscientist and neurologist, you know, that's under 40 years old, sure, they might still have the party line, but they're, You know, now they talk about the mind-brain body as one unit. You know, well, once you start to talk about the mind-brain body, and that's routinely talked about in the neuroscience circle. Um, You know, you're getting pretty close uh, to um, that, uh, you know, that the mind uh, could be. And and by the way, um, the world's most respected scientist is named Robert Lanza. He, he developed cloning when he was 13 years old and, and went to Harvard University and started showing him what he was doing at home. Um, and he's just brilliant. And uh, he absolutely believes that consciousness uh, dictates the reality. So, I mean, I, you know, but again, uh, you know, most of the, his reasoning, but he's published it in American Scientist, which, and it's not the new journal um and uh you know published there.
1: so it's creeping into mainstream science with yeah as you say robert lanza biocentrism but it even so you know he certainly received a lot of backlash for even daring to to put his views across which you know unfortunately did seem to turn him from being one of the most respected or the most respected scientists on the planet to being ridiculed for no good reason other than you know, given a part, a, a, a opinion which goes against the mainstream current understandings, right? Mm. And it shows you why I'm sure a lot of people, and you wonder how many scientists, you know, very brilliant scientists, do hold these beliefs but don't dare voice them.
0: That's like when I was at Seattle Children's Hospital during the day. Everybody say, "Yes, what's this about? You know, come on, you know, what's your study about? you yeah, that's, nuts." Um. The head of the ICU and the head of the Department of Neurology, uh, you know, were my uh, partners in that research, by the way. But then at night, they would call me up and tell me amazing stuff. So you're absolutely right.